Would you make your way back? If you need a Bible, uh, put your hand in the air, and uh, one of our Connection team members will bring you one. Uh, if not, otherwise, just, just find your way to 1 Thessalonians. It's in the New Testament. It's about halfway through that. And uh, you can turn, click, swipe, tap, or otherwise navigate to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13 this morning. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, um, we come before you this morning on a, an absolutely beautiful spring, late winter day. Um, and we are grateful for your mercies and we are grateful for the opportunity to worship you and, and, and praise you. As we continue in a series in prayer, we feel that we are not the people of prayer that we ought to be. And, and so we ask God that by your word, as you've promised, you would change us and transform us into the likeness of your son who prayed as his constant habit to his heavenly father and our heavenly father. May that be reflective of us. Father, we uh, cannot escape uh, the world events and, and national events that unfold before us. We trust in your absolute sovereign hand to guide these things to a good end. We pray for the Russian people this morning as they are electing a new president or re-electing a president as the case might be. And we pray that justice would reign in Russia. We pray for the gospel to flourish despite whatever form of government they take despite whatever preferences of their political leaders. We pray, Father, for the gospel to flourish here in our country, where true faithfulness, true faithfulness seems to be a minority, seems to be a, an exception to the rule. We are a nation, God, of... Much non-belief and much shallow and false belief. And so we pray for a revival in our land. May our prayers for revival be many. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, pray for me. Or pray for my brother, would you? He really needs prayers. You know, while you're at it, pray for our troops. 
and, and pray for the victims of that hurricane. We often make requests like that, don't we? And I assume that when we make these requests, we have specific ideas in mind. We know why we need prayer, or our brother needs prayer, or our aunts, or our friends, cousins, spouses. But we don't tell people why. We act as if it's sufficient to simply say, pray. But if the basic idea of the word pray is ask, then we're missing two key pieces of information. We're missing the who and we're missing the what. Now, I I think most of us can assume we're, we're asking God, that's the who. But we don't know the what we're asking God for. And that makes it difficult to meaningfully, effectively pray. The real stumper is the unspoken prayer request. Have you come across the unspoken prayer request? And if it's written out, like on a prayer card or something, it might be, uh, could you please pray for a thing that someone's dealing with that I can't really get into? Thanks, you know, anonymous. Um, how, How do you pray for that, right? I mean, I guess you can say, God, you know what this person wants, so I ask that you do that, whatever it is, unless, of course, it's evil or something, in which case, please ignore this and pardon the interruption. Um... Now, I don't bring that up to mock anyone, and I've certainly been guilty of some of that before. But Philippians 4, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, urges us to bring our requests before God. And we can't do that if we don't know what the requests are, can we? Maybe we do this sometimes, and I think this is the case, because we don't know what to pray for. And that's certainly something that we want to tackle in this series on prayer. Zach did a good job of rooting out some of those things last Sunday, and this Sunday I want to zero in a little bit at at looking at another example from Paul's prayers and how Christians pray for other Christians. Perhaps a better title would have been Christians praying about Christians as opposed to for Christians, but in either case, 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 through 13 demonstrates in Paul's example that our prayers ought to be deeply other-centered in our thanksgiving and our supplication. A Christian's prayers ought to be deeply other-centered, allocentric, if you will, in his thanksgiving and his supplication. So that's our basic outline, thanksgiving and supplication. Looking first then at Verses 9 through 10, Paul's example shows that we should thank God for spiritual fruit in the lives of others. So let me read that again. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. This is uh, interesting. Zach spoke a little bit about the circumstances of the Thessalonians last week and allow me to bring some of those things back to mind, especially for those who might not have been here, and perhaps add a couple things. See, Paul and his partners, Silas and Timothy, visited the Roman city of Thessalonica, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 17. As a former Jewish rabbi, uh, he was able to preach to the local synagogues, and he took the opportunity to show the Jews living in Thessalonica that this Jesus 
was in fact the long-promised Messiah, the anointed king that God had told was coming. And many Jews placed their faith in Christ as a result. But others were antagonistic about Paul's message. And those Jews engaged in some rabble-rousing, even working up the non-Jews by claiming that Paul was teaching people to be allegiant to Jesus instead of Caesar. And, And the resulting turmoil led to the imprisonment of a man named Jason, who had apparently opened up his house as a place for Paul and Silas to minister and possibly also a home for the young church that was forming. They wanted Paul and Silas, but they couldn't find them. And the small Christian community decided that it was best to get them out of town. So under the cover of darkness, they made their way to the next significant town over, which was Berea, which was about a 45-mile hike from Thessalonica. But when the Thessalonians heard that they were there, they sent a mob to persecute them again in Berea. And this time they decided that Paul needed to get away a little further. And so Timothy and Silas stayed behind, and Paul was sent off by boat to Athens, which is a considerable distance away. In all, Paul spent a relatively short time in Thessalonica, and apparently not much more time in Berea. With all the troubles they were facing, with the very little Christian discipleship, that the Thessalonians had received, you can imagine that Paul was anxious to know, how are they doing? Have they abandoned the gospel? Have they turned their back on Jesus? Were they imprisoned? Were they alive? Were they stagnant in their faith? What had happened? Well, apparently, Timothy gets to Athens. Paul had sent for him and said, hey, as soon as you guys can come, Come visit me. And and Timothy makes it to Athens, but so desperate was Paul to know how they were doing, he then sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out. He eventually meets back up with Paul after Paul has moved on to a city called Corinth and brings the news that despite the continuing troubles and persecutions that they're facing in Thessalonica, the Thessalonian Christians were standing fast in their faith. And Paul is overwhelmed which is where we pick things up in verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? The language here is language of debt. That seems odd. But when Paul says return, what thanksgiving can we return, it's, it's, it's like a repayment. Paul is so overjoyed by what he's heard concerning the Thessalonians. And and he feels that this is God's doing. He knows that this is God's doing. That God has provided him this great joy. And so he's indebted to God for this good thing that he has done in his own heart. And the only proper response to thank God for this joy, the only proper response is to pay this debt back with gratitude. But he confesses it would be impossible. That's how great his joy is. There's no way he could repay this debt. He's so joyful. But it's spoken in the context of prayer. And so it's clear that Paul is nonetheless trying to repay as much of that debt as possible in his prayers before God. What is it that brought Paul so much joy? That the Thessalonians stand firm in their faith, yes, but... But Paul also mentions their Christian community in Thessalonica is particularly marked by love for one another. 
And, and he also singles out that they have an eternal hope that transcends their temporary pains. What are you thankful for? I confess that if you judged me solely on my prayer life, I'm probably most thankful for food and then a number of generally positive things that have happened in my life. But these physical and fading comforts in this life are rarely, arguably never, at the forefront of Paul's prayers that are recorded in the scripture. When Paul mentions his own personal thanksgiving, it is almost always in the context of spiritual good being done through the lives of other Christians. So let's unpack that a bit, shall we? Begin with the thankfulness itself. What, what sparks thankfulness? What, what makes you thankful? I, I, th I think that what makes us thankful is uh, what motivates that feeling of gratitude. It's, it's the receipt of something that we perceive to be valuable from another person. It has to be from another person because we're not thankful for chance occurrences. That's just chance. It makes us happy, but we're not really thankful per se. And our thankfulness has to be uh, then directed at someone. And, and it's the receipt of something that we find valuable because we're obviously not thankful for things that are of no account, that are like neutral, right? We're not thankful for those things. They're just blah, right? And, and we're not thankful for things that are harmful that cost us. If somebody gives you $100, you're, you're thankful. If somebody steals $100 from you, you're probably not thankful. If somebody just does nothing to you, no hundreds going either direction, you're not thankful, right? You, you need something positive that you find valuable in your life. If something harmful happens to you, something costs you something, rather than having gratitude, you're probably spiteful, Right? But I say that it's something you perceive to be valuable for a reason, because you've probably had the experience of, of trying to do good for someone who wasn't thankful for what you were doing for them because they didn't see the good in it. Uh, we've been watching The Hobbit uh, the last three weeks. We do our family movie night most Friday nights, and we, so we've finally completed, again, Peter Jackson's uh, Hobbit trilogy. You know, it, it differs a little bit from the books, um, but, you know, the story, if you, if you haven't read it, if you haven't seen the movies, it, it revolves around this band of dwarves, one wizard, one hobbit, uh, attempting to recapture the dwarves' homeland and its riches from the clutches of the fierce dragon Smog. Uh, Smaug. I, I don't know, you say with a British accent, it's somewhere in between. And, and through great trials, this treasure is eventually reclaimed, but, but there's a problem, at least in Peter Jackson's uh, a version of it, the, the dwarven king, Thorin, having reclaimed his family's wealth, is consumed by lust for treasure. And, and the most valuable treasure of all the riches, the king's jewels, the, the Arkenstone, and it's missing. In fact, in fact, it had been found by that hobbit companion, Bilbo, but, but he kept it. He hid it from King Thorin because he saw how the riches were corrupting his friend. And he feared the Arkenstone would drive him to greater depths. It eventually comes out that Bilbo has kept this stone, this treasure from him, and in a rage he seeks to kill Bilbo. He's dissuaded from doing so. 
but it's only on his own deathbed that he recognizes that Bilbo's actions were true and for his good. He could not be thankful for Bilbo's actions until his perception had changed. And so it is with us. We, we sometimes uh, may take offense at things meant for our good. Or we might be grateful for things that ultimately destroy us because of an incorrect perception. So it's interesting that Paul is thankful for the spiritual vitality of these Thessalonian Christians. Because when was the last time you were thankful for the spiritual vitality of your friends, let alone distant acquaintances? If we're thankful for what we perceive to be valuable, and we are not thankful for the ways in which we see Christians alive and growing closer into the image of Christ by the Spirit, then it would suggest that we have a values issue, wouldn't it? Perhaps we value our own creature comforts, our own successes, our own happiness, and our fortunes more than we value the immaterial and spiritual good of others. And so to fix our thanksgiving, we need to fix our values. Let me give you a couple implications of this. First, we should not forsake meeting together with one another. That's a command from Hebrews chapter 10. And it's not merely about physical proximity. It's tied very much to what can be done within physical proximity, such as encouragement. And and we must seek out opportunities to be invested in people's lives. And by that, I do not mean, I can't mean, that we do that for our own sake. We need to be deeply involved in each other's lives for their own sake. And that makes a difference. Because if you only hear that we need to be more involved in each other's lives, you will likely make a point to spend time with your church friends. But if you take from it that it's for the other's sake, then maybe it won't be just with that friend who sits next to you every Sunday. Because it's not all about what you get out of it. It's what they get out of it. The irony, though, of that is that Paul did get something out of it. He got a spiritual good for himself from seeking others' spiritual goods. He got an immense joy, he says. So not to put it too strongly, and and don't hear me wrongly, but there is something of a self-rooted interest in Paul's example. That in seeking the spiritual good of other people, We find our own joy. And that doesn't come naturally. That doesn't come in our flesh. And as a consequence, we must be intentional about being engaged in other people's lives for their own good. A second implication is that it is not merely enough to be in engagement with others. We also have to inquire. If we want to know how to be thankful for people's spiritual growth, we have to ask about it. We must even pry a little bit. And for several reasons. For one, 
many of us do not like to talk very much about how we're doing spiritually, which is probably a concern for another sermon. Second, many of us do not correctly appraise how we are doing spiritually. So if I ask you how you're doing spiritually, I might not be able to take your word for it. And if you ask me, you might not be able to take my word for it. Not because I'm malicious and I'm holding back things from you, but because we often don't see our own selves correctly. Um, perhaps in your hubris, you, you think too much of yourself. Or, or perhaps in your lack of self-confidence, you think too little of yourself. And you don't rightly see yourself how the Spirit is working in you. And so sometimes we need to pry a little bit into the lives of people that we love and care about. And of course, we must learn to rejoice in what we hear. It, it struck me as I considered some commentary on, on 1 Thessalonians that there are some problems with these Thessalonian Christians. But you can almost miss them because of Paul's joys for the things that God is doing among them. We should be deeply concerned about the problems and the weaknesses we see in the Christian life of other people. But we need to rejoice in the Christian strengths we see. We need to rejoice maybe even first and foremost at the things that we see God actively doing in their lives before we get pained by the things that they're not quite getting right. And I think if we do that, then we will pour out thanksgiving to God for what we see. Try this as a tactic. Uh, and, and I say this in particular to, to the members who are here. Uh, take your member directory and work through it systematically. With each name, think specifically, what, what can you see that God is doing in that person's life? And then celebrate it by thanking God for it. And if you don't know anything, or, or if you want to know more detail, then a good practice, you have a mission to inquire and to pry until you know how to thank God for that person. If you're not a member of a local church and you're a Christian, well, let me encourage you to work on that promptly. It doesn't have to be here, but it should be somewhere. That's a different sermon. I think we've got one in the archives on that. You look, but if you're not a Christian, well, let me give you something to be potentially thankful for. It's something, in fact, that Paul was thankful for about the Thessalonians, that the Thessalonian Christians had turned to Christ in faith and Many had left pagan religions to become Christians after hearing the good news that there was a savior, a rescuer, who could rescue sinners from the, the punishments that were deserved for sin so that they might live eternally before God. And that is a promise that's open to you. And if you receive it in faith, you will have an eternal supply of thankfulness. The second lesson we take from Paul's prayer life is the spiritual concern of others should be an emphasis of our supplication, our asking. And I'm going to double up here on verse 10 and, and look at verses 10 through 13. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see, your, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith, 
Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Grammatically, there's uh, two prayer requests here, but, but in spirit there are three. And we'll, we'll take them as three and take them in turn. First, Paul is, is praying that Timothy and Silas and himself would be able to see the Thessalonians again. Now, um, perhaps Thessalonica was a beautiful city whose food and culture Paul adored, but we wouldn't know that because the only reason Paul gives is that he is concerned to visit them to supply what is lacking in their faith. And now that's not insulting. Um, For one thing, we saw that Paul's first visit was cut short because of persecution. Some would say it was just about three weeks that Paul was there. I think it was probably more than that, but it was still cut short. It's hard to know how long he was there, but it was shorter than intended. And if you read the Thessalonian letters, it's quite amazing, frankly, how much Paul can assume the Thessalonians know and understand about the Christian faith, having been with them only a short amount of time. And it's sort of an indictment on how lazy we are in our learning and our faith. And frankly, even more damningly, how bad we are at teaching our faith. But Paul understands that they still have gaps in their knowledge and their understanding. Presumably both in what they are able or what they are supposed to believe and and gaps also in what they are supposed to do. You might say they're orthodoxy, their correct belief, and their orthopraxy, their correct doing or action, are a little bit askew. And, and Paul wants to see that these gaps are filled in so that they are even more established, more faithful, more dedicated to Christ, better able to withstand the trials of life that might await them in Thessalonica. And we can actually learn several lessons from that prayer. Paul says he prayed earnestly night and day. Night and day may have been a figurative expression for intensity the same way for us. Uh, And earnestly is more literally beyond all measure. And the picture is clear that Paul was praying this prayer hard. It doesn't suggest a casual repetition of the same prayer, but fervent persistence in prayer. When did you last have fervent, persistent prayer about something? Let alone another person's spiritual well-being. If if we're to follow Paul's example, then sometimes a fervent persistence is necessary. So that's one thing we learn. Two, uh, a second thing we learn from this is that this prayer teaches us something about discipleship. Now, discipleship was a big theme of ours here last year. Um, Mark Dever, pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in in Washington, D.C., writes about it that discipling is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. Paul desperately wants to disciple the Thessalonians, so much so that he desires to travel perhaps hundreds of miles, 
perhaps by foot, to do so. Not to mention the fact that he's willing to relentlessly pray for that opportunity to come about. Brothers and sisters, we need to be engaged in discipling one another. We cannot and must not grow lax in that duty. If we are unsure who to disciple or how we will disciple them, then we need to pray and to pray relentlessly that God would make a way for us. The second request that Paul has is that the Christians there would increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Abound is a good word, but it's lost a lot of its punch in modern English. It used to mean, well, it means today to have a lot of something. But once upon a time, it meant to have an overflowing quantity, excessive amounts, which frankly is a little bit closer to what Paul meant here. Obviously, that's a bit hyperbolic because you can't ever have too much love. But the point hits home. Paul has already praised the Thessalonians for their love for one another. This is important. Why? Because love, properly understood, is one of the defining marks of a true Christian. Jesus himself says in John 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Imagine that. Loving fellow Christians is defining characteristic of a true Christian. Now, why is that? Well, there's probably several reasons, but one reason that loving your fellow Christians is so difficult is because of the very nature of the church. You see, the, the church, both universally and locally, is the congregation of God's chosen people. They're chosen of every tribe and tongue and every culture and ethnicity. It spans social classes. It spans man-made castes. It takes groups of people who were once at war and calls them brothers and sisters and puts them into one new people. If Jesus had had intended his church to be entirely composed of lower-class Chinese immigrants in the United States or to be entirely composed of upper-class Swedes, or to be entirely composed of middle-class Aboriginal Australians, this would not be a particularly distinguishing characteristic that they love each other, because it's easy to love people who are very much like you. But if the poor and the rich, the immigrant and the citizen, the Jew and the Palestinian, the Canadian and the American, can all love one another in a reconciled relationship in the church then something remarkable must be going on. And in praying that they abound or overflow with love for one another, Paul is incidentally praying for a greater and greater witness to the good news about Jesus Christ. But Paul goes on that they might also overflow with a love for all people. And that might hit home even more for these Thessalonians. Because recall, these are Christians who have been afflicted, to use Paul's word. They have suffered 
They have been persecuted. And Paul prays for their love for all people to increase. And I imagine that for some of the Thessalonians, they didn't want their love to grow for all people. I imagine they were quite content to quietly loathe the people who gave them harsh treatment. You could even imagine that when they sent report to Paul through Timothy, they might have asked Paul, pray for us. Paul, please pray that our persecution would end. Or or please pray that our tormentors would be destroyed. Because that's how we normally feel, isn't it? It's about me, and it's about my plight. But Paul prays for them quite differently. He he does not pray for their persecution to end. He, He does not pray for the destruction of their persecutors. In fact, he reminds them that they were destined for affliction. That that was their true lot as Christians. And so instead of praying for persecution to end, he prays that their love for their persecutors would grow. Perhaps the end of the persecution would be when their persecutors are loved into seeing and hearing the truth about Jesus. Sometimes the right prayer is not the prayer that we want. I think that's a danger sometimes. Uh, and one way, you know, sometimes we get these emails and we get these directories and things to pray for persecuted Christians around the world. And, and it's good that we pray for them. Please, we should be praying for them. But without good instruction... We might pray simply that their persecutions might end. And that might be God's will. But it's also quite likely that God brought about their persecution both for their good and also for the good of those who will see how they endure the persecution and so be convicted of the power of Christ among them and worship Jesus as a result. Zach talked last week about how we should pray with an eternal perspective. That's not precisely Paul's point in this passage, but it's not far away. He is certainly praying for loftier things than we typically pray for. And so Paul prays for a continual increase in love among these Thessalonians. And the third thing that Paul asks for, which again, grammatically, it's a, it's a consequence or a result of the previous prayer in verse 13, but it but it really is motivating, I think, Paul's prayer as its own request. It says in verse 13, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul wants them to abound in love with the result that God might establish their hearts as blameless in holiness before God. Ultimately, Paul's prayer is for their sanctification. Sanctification.